I usually do a sermon series on Old Testament during the summer, but the book of Acts that we've been studying since Easter was so inspiring that I had a hard time to let it go quickly. Some of you also told me that how much the stories of early Christians were encouraging. So I tried to make a connection from the stories of Acts to our pandemic situation as frequently as I could. But I feel the applications were more implied and indirect so far. Today, I want to share a message directly about the crisis of a pandemic with all of us who are separated from each other and struggling mentally and spiritually. I pray that today's story encourages and challenges everyone, especially those of us who are sick and tired of lockdowns and then feel zoomed out. I found somebody in the Bible whose life situation was very similar to ours, if not worse. His name is John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, And today we see him not as the youngest of the 12 apostles, but we will see the as the only remaining apostle, while everybody else was a martyr. And the old pastor exiled in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 to 20. As I read this inspiring story, I pray that the Holy Spirit illuminates our minds and inspires our hearts to be faithful witnesses of Christ like John. Let's read a passage. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Pemmas because of the word of God and testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which says, write on a scroll that what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of a man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like a wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like a bronze, glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like a sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like a sun shining, in all his brilliance, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and haze. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of seven golden lampstands is this. Seven stars are the seven angels of seven churches and seven lampstands are the seven churches. This story offers four inspirational 
challenge, encouragement and challenges to us. The first encouragement is this. We can never be in a place where Christ's love can find us. We can never be in a place where Christ's love can find us. The story begins with John telling us where he was. He told the readers that he was on the island of Apemus. Here, an Ivy translation misses a subtle and significant expression. So NASB, New American Standard Bible, is uh, translated verse 9 better. It said, I was on the island called Pemmas because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What's the difference between island of Pemmas and the island called Pemmas? If you are visiting your friends back in California and you meet folks at dinner who came to your friend's house and they ask you, where do you live? You don't say, I live in a place called Dallas. You say, I live in Dallas because everybody knows it. But if you live in Prosper, you have to say, I live in a place called Prosper, north of Dallas, near Oklahoma. You can grab some land here. Just as many Californians do not know the location of Prosper, many people did not know where Pamus was. That's why John explained where he was in this way. The point is this. The Lord Jesus is telling us that you can never be so forsaken, a place my love wants sick and can find you. That's the heart of this message. You may feel you are in a place called confusion, despair, or you are isolated on an island called loneliness and restlessness. But John is reporting the revelation of Jesus Christ, that Jesus came to me when I was on, on an island off the middle of nowhere. So, where is a Pemmas? Let me show you it on the map. Pemmas was a small island about 10 miles by 6 miles in the Aegean Sea, 37 miles southwest of Miletus and some 50 miles from Ephesus. Do you see Miletus and Ephesus on the map? Yeah, Ephesus is where John pastored. By ancient standard, it was well offshore, and trip would take some 14 hours to get there. And let's see other picture of uh, Pemmos Island. It, yes, that's an that's a actual physical you know, uh, uh, beach, uh, Pemmos Island. And also, let's see where John was staying. Now they built a shrine or sort of a small church, uh, memorial church in there. And there is a bench, but that's where, that's, it's like a cave, natural cave. That's where he sheltered in. Why was John on Pemmas? He was exiled there because he was faithfully preaching God's word and witnessing Jesus in his church as a leader. Now, what was a exile? We need to know what exile was. Simply put, exile meant banishment. Banishment. Romans were geniuses when it came to dealing with the undesirable people. Beside the immediate jailing and execution, they often exiled unwanted people into small island like a Pemmas. They banished both elite, such as political dissenters, and criminals to penal colonies. It was a cost-effective system since to exile people 
They could use a minimum number of troops to garrison this kind of small island, and they cannot swim away. Non-elite criminals had to perform hard labors. Elite did not work, but they were deprived of all usual privileges and pleasures. They had to live a life under closed state supervision with a minimal food and shelter to survive. People in Roman exile lived there until the emperor or governor had a change of mind, and usually they don't, unless there was a change of wind called fortune. Especially someone like John, a major leader of a suspicious illegal religions Romans called the superstitio or superstition, had no chance of getting out until there was a change of government. So just for your information, John eventually left uh, uh, Pemmas because uh, Emperor Domitian, who put John there, was uh, assassinated later. So once exiled, you, so going back to you know condition of exile, once you're exiled, you lose all your property, material comfort, social standing, indefinitely. So being exiled means it's like a serving a lifetime sentence without possibility of a parole. Eugene Peterson, a great pastor, nicknamed Pastor of Pastors, in his book, Reverse the Thunder, is very, uh, meditation, meditational book on Revelation, he comments on the social psychological effects of a banishment. The worst punishment possible in ancient Israel was a banishment. To be separated from family and country, from community worship and family faith, that was a cruelest decree. The severest judgment that nation of Israel experienced was an exile to Babylonia. A person created for personal relationship of love cannot live adequately without them. Exile dehumanizes. It sentences us to death by bread alone. It sentences us to death by bread alone. Exile and its banishment to create a life without the life joys. It demands life to bear existence. By the way, the fact that John gave a code name to Rome in the book of Revelation, Babylon, supports Eugene Peterson's assessment. Also, exile was the reason that John wrote this book, of, this book of Revelation in the language of apocalyptical literature. Apocalyptical literature is a, is a very common literature, spiritual writing in ancient world, especially during very difficult, precarious, adverse times. So Old Testament has one famous apocalyptical you know, literature, is a book of Daniel. And we'll see book of Daniel a little bit later. Full of symbols and representation, representation, because you cannot write very clearly because the the uh, the guards are looking over you. So you write in a way that only insiders or people who understand the biblical tradition. Now, what did you do if you are isolated from your loved ones for a long time? What did you do if you have a you know what would we do? If we have a huge second wave of COVID-19 and we have to go back to shelter in place all over until end of the year, until the vaccine is you know, uh, available next year, what do you think John did? John kept 
worshiping God more than ever. That's the second encouragement and challenge. Number two encouragement is this. We can never be bound. We can never be bound so that Spirit can lift our soul with hope. Verse 10, John said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He was worshiping God. And here is the first time we see Sunday was called the Lord's Day. It means by this time, end of the first century, Christians, including Jewish Christians, established the habit of worshiping God on Sunday, or Sunday become a day of Christian worship. Why Sunday? That's the three days after Jesus died for us. Jesus was crucified on Friday. Three days later, they counted Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So that's the three days later. Jesus rose from the dead. They, that's why they were celebrating God's redemption through risen Christ on Sunday. By the way, why didn't early Christian call a different Lord's Day among men, you know, with a different other possible names, like uh, 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 like a Christian Sabbath or New Sabbath or Day of Resurrection? Scholar says that this name must be seen in the context of emperor worship. In Asia Minor, once a month, special day was called Emperor's Day. Just as the emperor claimed the particular days as their own, Christians believed our Lord also can and should claim his day because he achieved the greatest victory through his resurrection. Once again, early Christian confession and worship contain the radical political implications that challenge the Roman imperial ideology. That's why, among all religions that Romans welcome into their religious pluralistic society, they persecuted only Christians. Only Christians were persecuted. Even today, Christians are persecuted in many autocratic countries. Also, the Lord's Day, it reflects the uh, Old Testament idea. Because Old Testament, there is a well-known uh, uh, language or uh, 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 term for God's judgment and the visitation. That is the day of the Lord. That's the day that God comes and crushes enemies and vindicates his own people. John was going to worship and capture vision of the eventual entry of God's delivering power over this whole planet and for his people. So John said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So even though John was physically separated from his church, he was not spiritually isolated from them. I believe John was praying for them in his exile more than ever. That's what I would do. That's what most pastors would do. You know, some Friday, I feel urged to pray for house churches rather than visiting them. So sometimes, instead of you know, inspecting, I feel uh, interceding to be my pastoral support and duty for everyone. So while you have a house church, few Fridays, I cried out all over again, even though I pray for most everyone during the week, I cry out to God to touch everyone 
in the house church, you know, house church meeting, calling out everyone's name in the each house church's list. So were you, your ears was itching during the last house church meeting? John is saying that what Jesus wants us to see is this. You can never be bound that my spirit can lift your soul with a hope. That's the second encouragement. Jack Hayford, a great Pentecostal pastor, gave a quip on this passage. He said, quote, Got a problem? Get in the spirit. Got it? Got, in, got a problem? Get in the spirit. Now, I want everyone to hear me carefully because I'm about to ask everyone to examine oneself honestly and seriously. When I hear some people feel zoomed out or tired of Zoom, and that's why they miss house church or Sunday worship, I really wonder if the real culprit is a Zoom or something else. While Zoom can never replace our actual face-to-face -face interactions, at least it does provide a minimally adequate communication. For, for me, meeting my family and friends via Zoom is better than not meeting them at all. Blaming on Zoom for not showing up at a meeting is like a canceling your dinner date with your loved ones because you don't like to eat the food or you feel so full. Or if you, in that case, instead of dinner, you should meet over coffee or walk together in a park. You don't cancel a meeting with your loved one because you don't like the communication device. Imagine I tell my brother in Venezuela that I'm not going to talk to you for a while because I'm sick and tired of your poor internet connection. If Apostle John could use a Zoom service in Panmus, would he complain like us? Would he say, I'm so sick of seeing people on the screen that I'd rather not see anyone for a while? Don't blame Zoom. Real issue is not a Zoom fatigue or communication flow. I think a real issue is a spiritual fatigue and commitment to shortage. This spiritual fatigue comes from the lack of focus on God. Yes, we need to focus on God through worship and fellowship more than ever. And that's now. Otherwise, you know what? You, we are bound to have more troubles with ourselves isolated by pandemics. You know, Hebrew 10.24 says that let us consider, let us really think about how we may spur one another toward the love and good deeds. And then first thing is that the Hebrew chapter 10 says, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day approaching. You know, first step to spur one another is to show up. This is not time to give up or take out Zoom but show up and see how God is doing everyone's life. And one house church leader told me that what people really miss is uh, mundane side talks. Well, feel free to use the chat in the Zoom. Zoom has a chat. I saw uh, uh, Mo using a chat during my sermon. And then, you know, I was fine. I mean, that's actually, that's okay because... He was listening and he was responding. 
While I can wait for reopening and seeing everyone face to face, I also thank God for this Zoom. Because the last you know, uh, Tuesday at our first Cornerstone uh, class this summer, you know, I noticed that more than half came out of town and out of state. Places like uh, Galveston, Houston, Albuquerque, Palo Alto, and Santa Clara. More than half of people, they joined us uh, Cornerstone Bible study through Zoom. So Zoom offers different blessings and, and options. I personally like Zoom. I'm, it saves uh, much travel time, gas, toll fees, and I don't have to worry about preparing snack. I mean, I love to prepare snack, but anyway. By the way, I'm not a Zoom spokesperson, but I want to say I'm actually blessed by Zoom. Only thing that I wish is that about Zoom is that our long-term financial committee, they should have bought the Zoom stock at you know, some point. Many people would love to have what we have today. You know, I heard in North Korea, especially those you know, remaining families of North Korean refugees, they pay a lot of money to somebody who has Chinese cell phone. And using that they cell phone, they talk to their loved one in South Korea. People in the world, many people, in, many people will love what we have. Let me share you a one story that inspires all of us. It's a, there, uh, I, I, I heard this story in CBN one day. Uh, you know, I'm not a, I'm, I don't watch CBN all the time, but somehow flipping the channel one day, I, I just heard that a little bit of story, I was hooked. It's the story of a colonel Carly Smitty Harris and his wife, Louis. And last December, they celebrated their 60th, 60th anniversary. It's amazing. Because Smitty was a, a Vietnam War veteran and actually he was a POW. Marriages of many POWs didn't survive. The torture left the soldiers with a PTSD that played out adversely in their marriages. Uh, so what happened was uh, Smitty's, he was a Navy pilot and his F-105 bomber was shot down in North Vietnam in 1965. And he immediately was uh, captured and taken to a uh, so-called uh, place called the Hanoi Hilton. That is a name that uh, American POWs gave. This is a notorious torture place. And the U.S. pilots were trained with a Morse cord before they captured or before they flew because during the World War II, U.S. POWs in German uh, camp, German prison camp, that's how they communicate each other. So they've been communicating each other with a Morse cord. And then when, uh, uh, you know, when uh, POW was taken to interrogation and the routine torture, and then when they, re it was, I'll spare all the details. They come back to their room, their, I mean, their, uh, their cell. And then soon as the Vietnamese guards were gone, they tap the Morse cord. And the first word they always tap to each other was a G-B-B. 
U acronym GPU stands for God bless you. God bless you. Senator, the late Senator John McCain said, without the GPU and Smitty, he would not survive that Hanoi's Hilton. Do you know how long Smitty, Colonel Carlyle, endured the imprisonment and torture? 2,871 days. If somebody could survive almost eight years with a Morse code, definitely we can and we should not just survive this pandemic via Zoom, but we should th thrive over it. So let's not make a Zoom fatigue as an excuse. Let's let's really zoom out. Let's really zoom. I mean, zoom forward. I don't know. Zoom on. Now let's go to, let's look at the uh, John's Theophany, the vision of Christ. And uh, this is the third, third you know, encouragement from this uh, story. That is, we can never fear because uh, Jesus is a closer and more powerful than we think. Jesus is a, uh, Jesus is a closer and more powerful than, than we think. Now, I like the beginning description. When John was praying in all silence and solitude, he said all of a sudden there was a loud voice like a blast of a trumpet. It's like a, a start of a rock concert. Jesus knows how to enter into our heart, especially when we are struggling. In verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in the robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. Here, Jesus was dressed up like a high priest with a breastplate. And according to Hebrews, he is our heavenly eternal high priest. And the hair on his head was white like a wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing fire. His feet were like a bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like a sound of rushing waters. I imagine that the Niagara Fall, that I, you know, the water fall, sound of a Niagara Fall that I once, you know, uh, uh, went in, it was a loud. In his uh, right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like a sun shining in all his brilliance. When I saw him, I fell his feet as a doe dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and last. I am the living one. I was dead. Now look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and haze. As John write this word and describe his reunion with Jesus, we should remember the last time John saw Jesus personally was on Mount Olive. About AD 30, 60 years have gone by. And there is a great significance in this encounter because no one knew Jesus better than John, according to the Gospel. He was the closest friend to Savior during his earthly ministry. This most familiar person turned to see Jesus now, and he was overwhelmed. I hear in this uh, message of Jesus to those of us who presume to know him well, 
when we face times, we think. I mean, Jesus is basically telling us, you think you know me well? You haven't seen anything yet. Hallelujah. You know, anti right to comment on this passage in this way. For some, Jesus is just a, a faraway figure of a first century fantasy. For others, including some of the today's enthusiastic Christians, Jesus is the one with whom we can establish a personal relationship of a loving intimacy. John would agree with a second of this, but he would warn against imagining that Jesus is therefore a cozy figure, one who merely makes us feel happy inside. To see Jesus as he is would drive us not to snuggle up to him, but to fall at his feet as though we were dead. That's what John is telling us. John was telling us through this encounter that Jesus is a more powerful than we can ever think and is a closer than we can ever imagine. Therefore, never fear anything but only Jesus because he's an everlasting God and he is for us. You know, when John describes the new vision of Jesus, he described the whole thing with the language of Daniel. So Daniel chapter 7, there was a well-known vision of Daniel where Daniel brought two divine figures. One is an ancient of days whose clothing and hair, uh, uh, hair was like a snow and white like a wool and snow. And then son of man who is approaching the ancient of days. So verse 9 and verse 13. And then, and then but in Revelation, John Bring these two figures into one, into Jesus. When you're looking at Jesus, he said, we see both ancient of days and also son of man. In other words, he said, when you see Jesus, you see God the Father. You see the Father himself. And here, I want to, you know, I cannot go everything in detail, but I want to I want to talk about the last you know last part of his about last part of his body, which is a feet. His feet were as looked like a fine brass, refined in a furnace of a fire. Those feet of Jesus once wounded now have become a feet of a dominion and strength. In the figure of a brass in the scripture, it means strength. As a tempering effect of a fire causes the metal to be prepared for shield or guards of some part of body for warfare. And brazen gate described the defense of a city. In that time, nothing could defect the strength more than the concept of a breast that has been fired in the furnace. And I can't help myself, but the last vision of Jesus that John caught was what? Jesus was going up and John saw his what? Last part of his body saw was feet. His crucified feet, now glorified and ascending to heaven. Now John sees this feet and there is a brazen quality. They are not a breast feet. Their feet looks like a, a breast. There is a glory and authority. The Savior who sits on the throne with all principle and power under his feet, call us to, you know that I am strong. 
and I no, nothing nothing can uh, I stand stronger than anything else in this world. And if you come to me, if you find the security in me, just like uh, my feet is strong, your feet also will be strong. With a strong feet, you can crush anything. You can crush any serpent. Here, I want us to know this. We learned past week's uh, daily breath that God's comfort is not soothing, but is a strengthening. And I want us to take a, a very important note here. You know, when Jesus came to John, Jesus did not console John with a, a very easy way out or with a promise of a change of a circumstance. Jesus didn't tell John that, hey, John, I want to give you a, 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 a great good news. There are people who actually hate the bad emperor Domitian, the guy who put you there. They are, they are plotting uh, assassination. Your liberation day is coming soon. Hang in there. Jesus didn't say any, any, any of this kind of thing. Jesus simply let John to come closer to him and see him. And that's the blessing of adversities and trials. You know, isolation can be a time for us to intensify our focus and our understanding of God. You know, that's why the first Christians, first Christian monks, guess where they went to focus on God? They went to desert. They went to desert. That's where they, they, it was a voluntary lockdown in the desert was the beginning of a Christian monastic movement and tradition. So I really want to, I want, you know, I really believe this pandemic offers blessings. It refines our extra superfluous attachment to many things, including some of our church activities. Yes, I miss the basketball games and, you know, brothers are having a, you know, fellowship through the basketball. But basketball, you're not coming to church for the basketball. That's extra. If those extra things, now that we cannot provide, will kind of, uh, you know, make you reluctant to come to uh, our service, man, you need to really, really check your spiritual health condition. Let me, let me, bring, let me go to the final point. Final point is this. We can never be lost because Jesus holds us in his right hand. Twice here, John says seven Jesus is holding seven lambs stand. His right hand, right hand of Savior, he's holding the stars of a seven, seven lamb stand. And these stars are the people, not stars in terms of a famous personality, but it stars in sense of people of God who can shine for God's glory and justice and peace in the dark and crooked world, as the Philippians chapter 2 says. So these seven lambs, is, this reference is a menorah, well-known Jewish, uh, Jewish you know, lampstand. So let's show the menorah. It's in, it's in actually 
in the temple. And uh, so he, John was actually saying that when Jesus came to him, Jesus actually provided a sanctuary or worship a temple. So Jesus actually revealed that John, you are not just praying alone. I'm with you. Actually, this you are in the holy temple. The difference between this uh, heavenly temple scene and then earthly temple scene is this. In Jerusalem temple, if you notice, there is only one lampstand and seven candlesticks out, right? Seven candle holders stick out. But in John's you know, vision, there are seven individual separate lampstands. And Jesus is holding them individually in his right, on his right hand, the hand of, a far, hand of a power. What is it Jesus is trying to tell John? Jesus was telling John that, John, you are not in, you are not in, you are not in the hands of a Domitian, even though he sent you down here at Pemmus. You are in my hand, in my right hand. I'm holding you and I'm going to use you as my pen to write final revelation for my people and my church. So verse 11 and 19, twice Jesus told John, command John, write this, write this in a scroll, write this book. You know, this command to write appears 40 times in the book of Revelation, more than any book in the Bible. You know, isn't it interesting that God gave us such an important and, I might say, a hard task of writing a book to John? You know, John actually worked hard to write a revelation because in Revelation, we find over 500 references to Old Testament just in 400 verses. So he, you know, if we were, it was like a PhD dissertation, I can imagine that all the footnotes, footnotes must be bigger than actual main content. I know a little bit about writing book. You know, writing book is not easy. You know, I wrote 260 pages of my dissertation, took uh, three years. I prayed every morning for every, you know, every little chapter that I'm writing. And question is, Jesus did not just comfort John or, you know, gave him a vision to encourage him. John, Jesus actually gave him a job to do, a task to do. Why? Ministry saves us. This task of writing a book is a hard, yet harnessing John's faith and honing his spiritual focus. Writing and working on God's word during difficult times, in a way, is a biblical tradition. Look at the Bible. Look at all the you know, biblical writers. Moses wrote uh, Pentateuch in the wilderness, struggling with this rebellious Israelite and sometimes fighting the war. David wrote many of his psalms while being pursued by Saul. By the way, we are going to start a series on David next Sunday. And Isaiah lived in difficult days and died as a martyr of, you know, martyr's death. Yet, he, he wrote one of the longest books in the Bible. Ezekiel also wrote his book in, in, in exile. Jeremiah his life was one of a trial and persecution, and he even wrote a book called The Lamentation. Piro wrote his two letters shortly before his crucifixion, thus in will of God. The final written revelation was given 
for John while he was suffering for Christ and the gospel. So, you know, pandemic doesn't mean that we take a ministry light and easy. We do, we go extra. We go extra. I told you the pandemic saved me a lot of time. So with all the you know, time that I say, what do I do? I dig in God's word. I dig in prayer more. And, you know, I walk more. And I really thank God for what God's been doing with the forest. You, uh, we will hear more in announcement, but it's amazing that we are about to have three new house churches, three new uh, house church multiplication and birth. You know, God didn't just maintain us. God grew us, each house church. So I'm really, really encouraged. And I really praise God and thank God for everyone who is faithful. And uh, we couldn't do this alone. So I really, this 2020 is an interesting year. Never we had, we multiplied uh, three house churches at one time. This is the first time. Last year, last January, we had uh, five house churches. Year and a half later, we doubled it. Praise God. I is only, you know, everything is a God's glory. Let me conclude. Let me sum up the uh, four encouragement. We can never be isolated in a place where Christ's love can find us. No place is inaccessible to Christ. Our Savior and Shepherd can enter any place and any time where we are, where we call Him. Number two, we can be never be bound so the Spirit can lift our soul with a hope. When we worship in difficult time, God draws near to us. And number three, we can never fear because Jesus is closer and more powerful than we can ever know. And number four, we can never be lost because Jesus is holding us in his right hand. You know, for John, Pemmas was infamous island, place of a banishment, a place of a punishment, place of a lonely wandering. But through God's grace, Pemmas became a place of a learning and seeing and understanding and encouraging others. I like the anti uh, final comment on this uh, today's, today's chapter, today's passage. He said, John was there by authorities to, for, as a punishment for his fearless teaching, and they tried to stop his work having any further effect. The result has been exact opposite. Exile has given him time to pray, to reflect, and now to receive the most explosive vision of God's power and love. He is still, he said, a partner with the churches in the suffering, kingdom, and patient endurance of Jesus. Here is an odd combination, we might think. How can kingdom, which means sovereign rule, sit together with the suffering and patient endurance? That is a part of the whole point of the book. Jesus himself won the victory through suffering. So must be his people. Dear Forest, brothers and sisters and family, let us fight through this pandemic with the Holy Spirit in worship and prayer and also with our brothers and sisters in fellowship. 
So like John said in verse 9, we can say, I, Paul Kim, your brother, or I, Sarah Kim, your sister and companion in the suffering of kingdom and patient insurance that is ours in Jesus, am on the island of a pandemonium because of the word of God and testimony of Jesus. And let's give a glory to God. Let's pray.